Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. And I am delighted to have with us today Wayne Goldsmith. He is in Australia at the moment, so it's his morning, my evening. So welcome along, Wayne. Good morning, Dan, or good evening, Dan, whichever way you look at it. Well, um, it's always time to play rugby somewhere in the world is the way that I like to say it. Or I say that to my wife and then she rolls her eyes. But for us sporty people, it's always a good time. So, uh, Wayne, uh, delighted to speak to you and great to have you along. And I know that you're buzzing with ideas at the moment so I'm gonna let you um, crack on with that at the moment but just uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment. Well I'm a, a consultant uh, what I call a performance consultant but increasingly over the years Dan that, that sporting organizations uh, in the NRL here the AFL in super rugby and football and the Olympic sports will ring me up and say look things are not working and it's interesting that their version of things are not working could be anything from leadership issues, uh, player cohesion, how they're working together, could be coach development, could be the way that the overall organisation works as uh, in synergy. It could be a strategic planning issue. It could be sports science. It's a whole – When the, it used to be when I first started in this business, it was very much around sports science, planning, programming, training, but increasingly I find when someone says, Wayne, something's not working, can you come in and have a look for a week? And let us know what you think. Most of it is around those what I would call softer areas around player attitudes and culture and values and coaching and cohesion and those types of things. So, look, I'm very lucky that I get to do that type of work with such a wider range of sports. And what it does, Dan, is it gives you a, a perspective. I, I believe very much if um, you're in a sport, there's a great line I like that says, to a man with a hammer, Every problem is a nail. And I think what happens if you're in rugby and you've got a problem in the team or you're not winning or you don't perceive that you're being as successful as you like, you go looking within rugby to solve the rugby problem. But I've got this great fortune that sometimes a client in rugby will say, Wayne, things are not working out. We need some work on leadership or team culture. And I've already seen that in an AFL team or in a triathlon group or a swimming team or an NRL team. I've seen it somewhere else and it applies very well in the rugby environment with a little bit of modification. So look, it's a great, I often say to people, it's a pretty blessed existence to have the opportunity to work with so many talented, motivated, enthusiastic people across so many sports. So when you get to go in, uh, so let's say it's Monday, what's the first thing that you do? Uh, first thing, believe it or not, is to do nothing. And that's a very good question. But over the years, I've found naturally enough that what I love to do is talk. And I love to talk and learn through talking. Increasingly, as I've got a bit older, hopefully a bit wiser, excuse me, that what I've learned is to say very little and just observe and listen. An old buddy of mine, a guy called Andy Friend, who actually is coaching in Uh, in Ireland at the moment, Friend, he said to me once, 
He said, Wayne, did you ever hear the the old adage from your parents that you were given two eyes and two ears and one mouth? And I said, no, I haven't heard that. And he said, well, it means that you look and listen twice as much as you speak. And it's a great coaching application as well. So the initial thing is to say nothing, is just to to look and to listen. Then I've got a bit of a, a checklist. I normally look at what I call the big 10. And off the top of my head, remembering it's morning here, off the top of my head, the big 10 are players, coaches, management, facilities, equipment, finances, uh, leadership, values, culture, I, I, uh, sports science, sports medicine. I look at, I've got a checklist and I, I gradually whittle down where I think the problem or problems might be coming from. And quite often, it's not easily identified. Quite often, Dan, it's not a, I think there's a problem with the players. Quite often, it's a cohesion or a link between the players and the coaches or a communication issue between the sports science group and the coaches. It, quite often, it's it's a combination of, of factors. So normally, I, I, I don't say much. I look and listen a lot. I also ask when I'm working with clients, certainly at, at international level, if I'm working with a senior international team or a professional team, is I need to see everything. So I sit in on the team meetings. I go to the games. I'm in the change rooms. I'm on the field during warm-up. You've got, my view is that it's pointless getting them in a room and doing a bunch of interviews. What most people, I think, in my line of work do is they get uh, they schedule appointments. They interview people for 10, 15, 20 minutes, ask them a list of questions or get them to fill in a survey. It, to me, it's next to useless. You've got to see players playing, coaches coaching, support team working. You've actually got to see things working as a, as a unit before you can make any sort of decision around what may or may not be working. A practical example of that is what I tend to do now is I used to do my end-of-season review work, funny enough, at the end of seasons. What I try and convince clients to do now is to bring me in with about three to four weeks to go before the end of the season so I can see live and in context what's actually happening. Because I think people get to the end of the season and they look back and say, yeah, well, it wasn't that bad or, you know, my tackling was great or the way we work. With, I, they get very coloured. Um, coaches, if you've been around the game for as long as you and I have, you know that there's coaches are a bit Jekyll and Hyde. In season, they're Mr. Hyde. And out of season, they're the most beautiful, polite, kind. They're almost different human beings. And I think once you get to the end of the season and you do reflection on the, the season that's just gone, it becomes very coloured and very you're blinded quite often to what actually happened in the environment. So I like to get in and be part of the action see what's happening and then say, right, this is what I recommend we need to do. Is there a danger that uh, they know that there's someone's observing them and you're there, uh, maybe not saying much, but they get a little scared, perhaps defensive, don't act uh, as they would. Uh, I know that that's um, a problem certainly in the classroom where teachers are observed and they find it very difficult to be themselves because they know that they they're being listened into and checked up and there's a checklist against them how do you how do you sort of avoid that and um do you take that into account when you're observing yeah it's a, again a, a wonderful question well, i like to brief whoever has invited me in usually the head coach but 
Sometimes it's the the board or sometimes it's the CEO, depending on where they are and how the team's tracking. But I often will brief them in great detail about how they need to introduce me. I'm very, very strong that the best I can be, the best service I can deliver is to be as unnoticed as possible. So usually teams will introduce me as this is Wayne, he's um, coming to observe us for a few days and, and leave it at that. No big introduction. Obviously, players have got access to social media and so on, but I find most of them in season find that I'm just a largely irrelevant little fat Australian man and they don't waste too much time looking. All they're worried about is are they going to get selected next week and how they played. They don't waste too much time doing any research on me in most cases, but I, I underplay it. I don't, uh, certainly um, in some cases when I've worked with national teams or when I've worked with AFL, because in Melbourne, particularly here in Australia, they're in a bit of a, a fish tank. They're very much under observation 24 hours a day. And if the media gets wind that there's a advisor, a consultant or a coach developer or whatever role I'm playing is there, then there's a bit of a panic starts to spread. Well, why has the team invited someone in to help is the coach about to be sacked so again I, I avoid any any um any noise in the media certainly don't make any announcements through social media most of the time I don't tell anyone other than my wife that I'm doing something because that confidentiality and anonymity allows me to do my job a lot better when you're watching these players and I'm going to ask you well, the questions in a moment but when you're watching uh what sort of things make you smile? What make you nod and think, yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm pleased that they're doing that. The, the main obviously thing, you're, looking for, you're obviously looking for positives as well as looking to change things. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things I look for all the time is what's the player's attitude? What is their commitment to the program? And there's a, there's a, there's a funny line of the ex-Wallaby coach going way, way back. Ellen Jones likes to use over and over and over. He says, you're looking for people who are committed. What's the difference between commitment and involvement? He said it's like a, a dish of bacon and eggs. The pig was committed, the chicken was involved. And I've heard him say that many, many times. But the way that it looks, I'm looking for the player that you go to the gym and the strength and conditioning coach has written, let's say, three times eight, eight sets, uh, three times eight bench press. So they want them to do uh, bench press lift eight times and have a break and do three sets of that. I'm looking for the player who does nine. I'm looking for the player that does four sets. I'm looking for the player or the players who are stand, they do their lifting and they stand behind or next to their teammates and cheer them and inspire them and encourage them and push them when it needs to be. And I'm looking for the players, for example, that coach says, look, guys, I need you down on the field at uh, four o'clock. I'm looking for the ones who are down there at 3.15, maybe doing some extra line-out practice or the ones who are doing kicking practice without being told or, you know, the ones who are committed to personal excellence and the ones who who are selflessly, selflessly, which I think is the cornerstone of success in all sporting teams, but the ones who are selflessly donating their time to help their teammates get better. When you start to see those things, Dan, you go, this place is really kicking. This place has got potential. Where I'm seeing the opposite 
where I'm seeing players doing minimum standard, where I'm seeing coaches come in late, where I'm seeing a lack of attention to detail, where I'm seeing discipline issues, then you know that there's going to be problems. And you pick that up very quickly. I think I've been doing this now for 25 years and within two or three days, it's very clear what sort of culture in your environment you're dealing with. And then it's just a matter of figuring out who's responsible for either the the outstanding qualities you're seeing or who's responsible for the problems. So we obviously want to have pigs more than chickens. Yes. Uh, in our teeth. <laughs> and is it, uh, is it a case of nature and nurture or what, what sort of solutions are you going to implement? Because some players right from an early age, you can see they have those attributes. They naturally are the ones who are team players, the ones who are going to put the extra effort in. And then you're going to have the prima donna type player who is the frustrating one, does the bare minimum, yet is so talented that they've always got away with it. Now, those are two players at the each end of the spectrum. How do you get that prima donna to be more like the one who is more selfless. Yeah, that, that's um, this is an issue. I particularly talk about this with parents, Dan. That I think the parents, I say, look, there, there's uh, my model. <coughs> excuse me, of player development is pretty simple. That you've really got four types of players. You've got players who lack talent and have no interest whatsoever in becoming a professional player. They just they're not interested in sport. They have no talent. They have no interest. For them, let's get them playing touch football, keep them fit, keep them active, keep them healthy and and have a lifestyle conducive of, of wellness and well-being and fitness and, and those things. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the, the athletes who are unbelievably talented, I mean, just brilliantly talented, exceptionally talented and have got what we call the package. Commitment, dedication, hard work, resilience, passion, drive, got all those things and the two things marry well together. The two people that jump out all the time when I think about it was George Gregan when I had the opportunity to do some work with the Wallabies when Eddie Jones was in charge. I mean, Griggs was apart from, for his, particularly for his size, I mean, he's only a, a relatively short man, but his, his preparation, attention to detail, his enthusiasm, his leadership, uh, turning up, he'd be asked to turn up for a recovery training. He'd be there first. He'd encourage his teammates. And then you'd see him at the end of training picking up dirty towels off the ground that players had used. You'd see him help the physiotherapist clean up and uh, it been just the whole package. And the other athlete that I've been lucky enough to work with and, and observe has been people like Michael Phelps in swimming. So you've got exceptional, but you don't see many of them. There's far fewer of those than people might believe. The two most common sort of players I run into, Dan, are the ones who are exceptionally talented but have no commitment. They don't get the other side. And as you say, they might have been the best player at 11, 12, 13. They've easily made representative teams. They're the biggest, the strongest, the fastest. So they're cruising through on natural talent and physical ability. And they've never had to learn all those great qualities that underpin sustainable long-term success. And they're the most frustrating. And you know, as a coach, Dan, that they're the most frustrating, time-wasting athletes. If I know time-wasting seems like an extreme comment. But, of course, what you do as a coach, you go, 
I can change this kid. You know, if I can tap into the motivation of this young athlete, this talented athlete, if I can touch their heart and their mind and really inspire them with their talent, they could be anything. And you have that conversation with them. Do you know how much talent you're, 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 got? you're scaring you're scaring me here because I I think you're going to say to me in the end there's going to be no solution. Well, there is a solution, but it requires a real commitment from the coach and the parent, and it needs to start at a very early age. I do a lot of parent talks, and I'm doing a tour of England and and uh, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales soon. And in my parent talks, I say to the parents these words: Don't worship physical talent. Don't worship physical talent. That that physical talent in the vast majority of cases is a terrible indicator of long-term potential success. And we get overly, the, you know, it's like you've got this kid who's 12, big, strong, scores 60 tries a year. You can put him anywhere in the field. He can play fly half. He can play up front. He can play at the back. Anywhere you put the kid, he's amazing, incredibly fast but turns up late for training, doesn't pass the ball until they're in a really bad spot, doesn't contribute with tackling, is a terrible trainer. And people say, we've got to change this kid. We've got to make an impact on this kid. And then, people, well, hang on, maybe we don't do that because if he gets angry, he might leave our team. And we overly hmm. prize physical talent at too young an age. And as a result, they go 16, 17, 18, they get the mid-20s, impossible, in, next to impossible to change. So in reflection on your previous question, if I'm in a professional team, a lot of those players get weeded out very quickly anyway. The ones who don't, what I find, Dan, is you've actually got to be honest. Sit down with them and look them in the eyes and tell them the behaviours and the attitudes they have got, which are not only holding them back from what they can achieve, but are impacting negatively on the team. What I tend to do with those guys, and again, I can't say I'm a rugby expert. I've been around to the game now for a, a while, but I tend then to go to training with them and with the permission of the coach, and it takes a bit of trust from the coach to let me do this sometimes, but I'll be out on the field and I will challenge those players myself about their attitude. I don't tell them about how to pass the ball or kick or how to uh, anything to do with their arrival tech or anything like that, that's outside my expertise. But if I think they're standing back or if they're not giving 100% effort or if they're not contributing positively to the team and with, as I say, with a trusting relationship with the coaches that I build over time is I'll pull the player out and I'll say, this is what is holding you back. This is what's and, – and challenge them and say, how could you do this differently? How could you do this better? How can you change your behaviour and your attitude to contribute better to the team right now. And so you've actually got to, uh, you know, again, you can't do this in a classroom and you can't do this in a counselling session. You've got to work with them on the field, in the gym, in the change rooms. You've got to show them and talk to them at the time about what they're doing that's that's seriously um, impacting on their personal ability. Without doubt, the most common player, going back to my four categories, the most common player that I see I wouldn't tell you is untalented, but they've got a level of talent, but their their passion and their commitment and their enthusiasm and their love of the game of rugby and and their desire to be all that they can be and play football is unmatched. I think the bulk of professional players are actually in that box. I don't believe 
and uh, it might be a bit controversial, but I don't believe even the majority of players playing at professional level are what you would call super athletes. I think they're very, very good athletes, but I think it's their underpinning qualities that are helping them to get absolutely everything out of the talent that they've got. And if that's the case, um, would you not then say to any coach, um, don't bother with the the guy who you're going to spend all that time with. Let some other team have that. Let's concentrate on those on those players who deserve it. That that's a that's a very complex issue, isn't it? That in the end, and and you know, I'm, I've um, I can tell you a story from the last 24 hours, Dan. I've been very very fortunate to be invited by the NRL, the National Rugby League, here to be part of their coaching advisory panel. And we met yesterday here in Australia with some very switched on senior coaches and former players and coach educators, another group to talk about shaping the future of developing coaches and how we can be better at coaching coaches in the field. And one of the clear messages that came out of that group, very, very clear and and emphasized repeatedly over the day, was the need for us to coach coaches how to coach. And I know that sounds a little strange and a little bit um, catchy like it should be on a T-shirt, but we've seemed to have spent so much time coaching coaches on physiology, biomechanics, nutrition, psychology, skill acquisition, performance analysis, all those things. And they've, they've obviously all got an important role in the game. But what we've generally overlooked is coaching coaches how to impact on the hearts and minds of players, how to inspire players, how to impact on them as human beings, how to connect more effectively with them. My definition of coaching is it's the art of inspiring change through emotional connection. It's the art of talking to a human being, connecting with a human being, understanding what it is they're looking for, understanding their motivation, then inspiring them to change in ways that are going to help them get better. And we've overlooked that a lot in coaching coaches. So what I say to coaches when you're working with those young players, those ones that are the super talents who could be anything, and unfortunately most of those young players who could be anything end up being nothing, Not in certainly in a rugby sense, most of them are just not there after mid-teens. The first thing is just to teach the coach how to connect with them. When you get the senior level, and I can think very clearly of three or four play, three or four coaches in this part of the world, Wayne Bennett in the NRL, Craig Bellamy in the NRL with Melbourne. Those guys would have a very cut and dried situation that if you're a, uh, what I would call a cowboy, if you're a little bit of a show pony and you're not committed and dedicated and giving everything you can to your personal preparation and to the team environment, then they terminate your contract. And there's a lot of examples where both of those coaches, remembering that those two coaches and in that game have been clearly the most successful and the most dominant over the last 20 years, those coaches, those two particularly, would just say, look, I'm sorry, you're just not demonstrating the types of values and attitudes that we prize in our culture. A lot of teams, uh, Dan will say, Wayne, we want you to have a look at our culture. And culture is very simple to understand. In a rugby team, culture is what you do. It's not what you say. It's not the values that are written on the wall and the words like uh, passion and enthusiasm. And that means nothing. I'm working with a netball team here, a professional netball team 
last year, Dan, and they told me about their values and showed me how they've got them on their letterheads and at the bottom of their emails and in the gym. And then I saw the athletes turn up late. I saw the athletes lacking enthusiasm, the athletes being negative, the athletes losing their temper at each other during training. And the coach asked me what I thought. And I said, your values have no value because your values, your culture is what you do. And what you say doesn't matter. What you're doing is not conducive of a successful environment. And the coaches who are successful in rugby and, and in any sport, they they have to see that the attitudes and behaviours are being lived. And if it's not being lived, no matter how talented the player might be, then sometimes you've got to make a pretty tough decision and say, I'm sorry, your behaviour is eroding what we're trying to achieve here. Now, what now interests me is that you've mentioned a couple of coaches and there are lots of there have been lots of successful coaches across lots of different sports and there's no mould which they come out of. They are all made in different ways and have different attitudes. So is it possible to be yourself or a better version of yourself and be a good coach or do you need to actually follow some clear path to create these sorts of cultures because they're obviously essential and the way that you put it across and the language you use is important but is it is it still possible to have a personality which is your own or do you really need to be very much like some of these coaches you've been talking about now the the essence of greatness i think in every walk of life is uniqueness you can look at People even as recently as people like Steve Jobs with Apple, you can look at great leaders and uh, influential coaches and players. We prize individuality and uniqueness as the cornerstone of greatness. If you're going to be a great coach, you have to be yourself. You you can't be anything other because you know that the great line, Dan, in sport that Sport doesn't build character, it reveals character. And I've seen that in movies, I've yeah. seen it because particularly as a professional coach and or, or, or coaching at any level of competition, that you're going to be under pressure, you're going to be under stress and you're going to be tired. And in that setting, who you are is going to be exposed, it's going to come out. So you have to be very comfortable being who you are, but you also have to be very honest about your own strengths and weaknesses and make a decision on whether or not those things are helping you to get better or are they hindering where you've certainly I'm a big fan of mentoring, finding the right mentor and seeking their honest guidance. A great model I, I like very much here is that what I find is that, uh, and, and Robbie Deans from New Zealand was a master at doing this, but there's a lot of other coaches who do it as well. So quite often looking for a mentor within rugby if you're a rugby coach, so say you're coaching in Cardiff and you're a rugby coach, trying to find another rugby coach in Cardiff who may be a competitor of yours, either in competition or for your job, to give you honest, constructive feedback is very, very difficult. And it's the same all around the world. Very difficult to find someone who is likely to be a competitor to give you honest, direct, constructive feedback. So what I find increasingly professional coaches will do is they'll build little mentoring networks so you might be a rugby coach in Cardiff, but your mentor, your co-learner, if you like, someone that you've got a confidential relationship with where you both benefit 
from might be someone from Super League in Leeds and you might invite someone in who coaches county cricket and you might have somebody in who coaches at Olympic level in swimming and you form a little group where you're all working and coaching around about the same level but you have no political bias and you've got no reason not to be direct and honest. And those little groups where they understand coaching and they understand what coaching is all about, but they're not a political obstacle or they don't represent any political threat and they don't represent a bias based on what's happening in other places in your sport, they can be very powerful. But now look, the essence of greatness in any walk of life is uniqueness. Coaches have got to be themselves. And part of that is figuring out why are they coaching. And again, this is the conversation that we were having yesterday, that one of the first things I encourage coaches to do as they begin their learning journey is to challenge themselves why they're coaching. I think we say to coaches, what's your coaching philosophy? It's a bit too much to get your head around. But I encourage coaches to say, well, why am I coaching? And most of the time they say, because I love rugby. That's not really an answer. That's a taxi driver or a barman's going to tell you that. You say, well, but why do you love rugby? Well, I love it because um, of the great friendships that you form with other players. So I then say, Dan, go a bit deeper and ask the question again, but why is that so important to you? Why are friendships in the game of rugby so important? Then they start to tell stories. And as a species, we've been storytellers for thousands and thousands of years, and we're at our best. And we're at our most honest. We're telling stories about our lives, I think. And so quite often someone will say then after the third why question, is I say, well, when I was a kid, I had it a bit tough. I was growing up in a fairly tough neighborhood and and things were a bit rough at home as well. But I'd go down to the rugby club and my mates were there, my friends were there. And it was some of the best times of my life and we still stay in contact. Okay, so the reason you're in coaching is that you believe the game is a great vehicle to create lasting friendships and support systems for life. And we spend a lot of time helping coaches, figuring out what's driving them, what's motivating them to coach. Once they understand that, things become surprisingly easy, Dan. I think, you know, what your question is a very good one because I think a majority of coaches don't go through a process of saying, well, why am I doing this? I mean, if your answer to that question is, because I bloody hate the Australians and I'm going to do everything we can to beat them at World Cup level and I'm not going to be happy until we trample over a whole bunch of gold jerseys, well, then you probably don't want to be coaching the under sixes. You've got to then set yourself on a path based on excellence, on leadership, on sports science, on planning, on programming, on tactical, uh, on skills and because you're motivated, what you're in it for is very, very different to the person who says I'm there for fun families, friendships, and enjoying the beautiful game of rugby. Well, it seems seems to me that seems like a far more powerful way of approaching this idea of maybe creating your own philosophy, because I think there's lots of dangers in that, because by trying to put it into words, you lose that essence, that uniqueness of what what stories brought you to where you are. And um, I think I read the other day that... uh, Maybe you should be looking at your purpose, not your goals as well. And in that sense, uh, by asking those questions, someone really discovers the real reasons why they get up in the morning and they get down to training or wherever they're, they're traveling to that day. And whatever life throws at them, they're ready to take it on 
and move to the next stage. And I think the purpose probably remains the same pretty much throughout your coaching career uh, and your goals and philosophy probably adjust according to the people in front of you. Is, does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're on the money there. There's a great line from Wayne Bennett, the NRL coach here. He says it's a, it's a wonderful line. He wrote a book uh, many years ago that's called Don't Die With The Music Still In You. And it's all about his philosophies on life and his, his um, attitudes to coaching. But he's, he's got a, a tremendous line where he says, what you take out of coaching is probably what you took into it. And, you know, you think about that for a moment, that, you know, sure, if you're in coaching for 20, 30 years, things like strength training, that's changed. What machines to use in the gym, that's changed. Recovery has changed. Use of technology has changed. Um do we play a man-on-man defense? Do we play a, a zone defense? Do we, you know, how many do we commit to line-outs and break? Everything has changed based on a whole range of factors. But if you've gone into it with a burning ambition to win, that doesn't change. So you go in, all those other things are just tools and vehicles and techniques of you achieving that burning ambition to see players achieve greatness and to be all they can be. And I think he's right. I really do. I think what you go in with, but what I then say is that, that you know, that that level one or that, I don't know what it's called in, in, in Wales or in the UK island, but that first session that you have with new coaches where they come in all shiny and new and not jaded and broken down like the rest of us, but they come in and they're, they're enthusiastic, they're positive and they're looking forward to a career changing the lives of, of players and spending time in the great game, that moment right there, that first moment, first session, why are you here? Why are you coaching? What's driving you? What's motivating you to want to come in and influence the lives of young people through this game? It's, we spend time so the coach goes, yes, I get it. I know why I'm doing this. And that could be something as simple as I'm coaching the under sevens because no one else would. Everybody else took a step back. I was left there standing by myself and I had to do it. Otherwise, my son wouldn't have a team to play in. Or it can be something as simple as, look, I had to do it. No one else would put their hand up. I'm stuck with it. That's a, that's a motivation. That's sure. As long as they understand that. Think where we've got better over the years, Dan, not just with coaches but with players. Think the old way of doing things was we would try and impose our motivation as leaders or as coach educators or people from national rugby organisations. We'd almost try and impose our motivation and our love of the game and our views on all the coaches and try to get them to think and act the way that we wanted to. Now, much, much better is help them to discover what's motivating them and then give them the environment and the opportunity to to live that and to express that. And that's the way that we want to coach our players as well in sort of like a, a player-centred method. Yes, we want the game to be played in a certain way. Uh, but you guys, as you said, I don't want to win the... You're not going to win the World Cup with under sixes. So... Let's uh, let's play something which you you'll enjoy, not what I enjoy. And actually, probably if you're enjoying it, I will enjoy it. So let's just try and change that that way of approaching things because 
I think we do often get ourselves into have pictures of what we think it should look like. And really, we shouldn't consider things like that. We should be looking at it as uh, through the, the, the lens of the player who's, who we're coaching. And this is why they've come along. This is the stories which they've told themselves. This is the glories that they want to try and replicate. And I've just got to try and create that environment for them. I can't be telling, telling them off for not uh, doing certain things, which I believe are right. I've got to be telling them off when they're not achieving what they want to achieve. And perhaps that's, uh, that's the attitude we should be taking a lot more rather than, as you've said, trying to impose upon them what we want our motivations. I, look, it, it, it's definitely the way that I'm seeing the game in Australia, uh, definitely New Zealand. I spent a lot of time in New Zealand as well. It's definitely the game. The, the most common line I hear, and I heard it again yesterday, Dan, is the game is their teacher. The game is their teacher. I think we've, we've, we're moving past this era of rigid drill-based instruction, for particularly for young players, say 6 to 12, 6 to 13. I often say to rugby coaches, you guys have got more drills than a hardware store. And it, it, it just young player can't pass, so you pull out a drill. And they still don't say so bring out another drill. That causes another problem. So, and all of a sudden you've got these kids that are – uh, at the ground, they're 10 years of age, they're there for an hour and a half, and they spend 75, 80 minutes just doing drills. If you say to the players, why are you here? I just want to play with my friends. That's why, why else are you here? Oh, because I enjoy the game. It's great fun. Why else are you here? I want to learn some new stuff. Why else are you here? Oh, because um, it's great playing the game. None of them say, and I want to learn 72 different drills on how to pass. They all just want to play the game. And if I'm seeing one very, very clear trend in rugby around the world and being fortunate enough to see it in a lot of countries and also across a lot of other football codes, it's very much this this player-centred focus is saying to the players, instead of what we call telling and yelling at them and being a sage on a stage, which is old coaching, is we might say to a player, look, here's a, a basic uh, breakdown drill or this is a really simple passing drill or a, a kicking drill <clears throat> and the players you know we might demonstrate two or three times and they might do it two or three times but then we go to the players and say all right here's a scenario if you notice in our passing drill the ball's getting four or five wide very quickly if you're in a defensive side how could you stop that ball from going wider one of the players will sooner or later say well if we moved up faster Great idea. Why don't you try that? So what I'm seeing, coaches are coaching by questioning, by engaging, by listening, by allowing the players to figure things out because problem solving is such a powerful learning tool. You know, old coaching, again, Dan, is you'd say, well, no, I will tell them to move up faster and I will make them move up faster and we will do it until they get it right. And you tell me one kid that you've met, particularly a teenager, who learns by repetition anymore. Nobody learns that way. The, no one in society wants mindless repetition. So as coaches, we can either lament that those days have gone and that kids are lazy and they don't want to work hard, which is completely wrong, or we change the way that we deliver the information. And that questioning tool is a very powerful one. And if it, 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 it gets the, the players to buy in on their skills development 
Whereas again, that imposing, I'm going to make them get it perfect so it looks exactly like the backline does on uh, at the national team, or I'm going to make them defend like the All Blacks because I've seen it on TV. That those days are well and truly over. It's it's very much about working with players and being part of a learning journey with them and not coaching at them. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think uh, the good news is that that's a lot more coaches are moving that way. Yet uh, there's also the churn of new coaches coming in all the time. And they're not used to that necessarily. And we've got to try and convince them. And we've also probably got to convince there is still an ongoing drills versus games argument which goes on on Twitter and other areas all the time. And that's great. It's great to have that level of debate. Um, but in the end, um, it's all about creating that sort of that great environment, the great environment that we probably sort of remember ourselves and why, why we're in it. Now, Wayne, we, I, I've got a whole raft of other questions, which I'm going to ask you not today but on an, another occasion because we've cracked through some great information and I know you, uh, you're a busy guy. Just tell us a little bit about um, you coming to the UK. Yeah, I'm looking forward to coming back home in some ways. I'm lucky I've got um, England and Welsh uh, grandparents, so I'm looking back to coming back to my second home in some ways. I arrive in Scotland on April the 17th. I've got some commitments around a range of sports, but I'll be in Scotland from April the 17th until April the 28th. I'm then in Ireland from April 29 through to May 7. I'm then in England from the 8th of May through until the 16th of May, then back to Ireland for a few days. And I finish the tour in your neck of the woods. I'll be in Wales from May the 20th through to May 24th couple of days in England doing some work with swimming on the 25th, 26th of May, then home to Australia to the beautiful Gold Coast on May the 27th. I've got a website, which is wgcoaching.com, wgcoaching.com with links to Facebook and a whole range of other areas. And there'll be information there about where I'll be, what sort of events I'll be doing and what times and dates, but cannot wait to be back in that beautiful part of the world. Well, uh, we'll try and give you some uh, typical UK weather to welcome you. Uh, so some rain and some wind and uh, some opinions, no doubt, as well. I shall put, post all that information uh, underneath this uh, blog as well on the podcast. But, Wayne, brilliant. Always good to catch up with you and uh, some great ideas. I shall be thinking about my pigs and chickens uh, when I – when I go away, but also I think some of the things which really strike strike home to me is the importance of being yourself and being true to what you 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 set out to be as a coach. And um, I'm always a great believer in trying to become the best that the best person that you are, and uh, something I would like to strive to get there sometimes. But in, in the whole range of sport. Again, it's about personalities. It's about human interaction far more than where exactly do you put your hands to make this pass or where do you uh, impact with the shoulder to make the strongest tackle. It's all about the human beings, and that's absolutely essential. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more that, that 
if the one thing that I've learned through being in this business for a long period of time is that it's about we're in the people business. It's some people choose to help develop their potential and the lives of rugby players. Some do it through swimming. Some do it through teaching. Some do it through psychology. But I think as coaches, we're we've got some sort of drive to help people be all that they can be. And it's it's the Dan, it's the most wonderful profession in the world. There is we we impact on and we change the lives of more people and in stronger and better ways than just about any other profession. And it's an absolute joy to get out of bed and do it every day. Oh, I agree. I agree. Anyway, Wayne, thank you very much and uh, stay well. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you to the sunny UK, um, April and May. And uh, brilliant. Really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.